What's the difference between building a company and investing in a company? And can you do both at the same time? Welcome to Venture Voice, show number 10. I'm Greg Gallant, and today we have Brad Feld with us of Mobius Venture Capital. Although he's a venture capitalist now, Brad started his career as a very vigorous entrepreneur. He grew Feld Technology to a size that it got acquired and did a lot of work with the acquiring company moved into angel investing and is now at Mobius Venture Capital. Geographically, Brad doesn't operate the way you'd expect him to as a venture capitalist. Unlike the rest of his firm, which is based on the West Coast, he's based in Colorado during the uh, winter, fall, and spring at least, and over the summer, and right now while we talk to him, he is based in Alaska. This doesn't keep him from doing deals all over the country, though. He's invested in FeedBurner. Uh, Dick Costello, FeedBurner's CEO, was our first interview here on Venture Voice, who's based in Chicago. On this show, talking to us over the internet from Alaska, Brad shares with us some of his wisdom from both sides of the table as an entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist. Welcome to Venture Voice, Brad. Thanks. Now, before your life as a venture capitalist, you were an entrepreneur. Can you tell me about your first venture? Sure. My first real company was a software consulting firm that I started with a partner, a fellow named Dave Joe, in 1987. We wrote custom software applications for businesses, typically medium-sized and small companies. Uh, we were based in Boston and uh, self-funded the business. We started it with $10, so we never raised any real money. 10 bucks was all we had at the time. And built a uh, profitable, because we had to be a software consulting company that grew to be about 20 people when we sold it in 1993. A lot of people have trouble scaling up consulting companies where they have to sell hours as opposed to product companies. What did you find was the trick to really ramping your business up and not just getting stuck at a one or two person firm? The fundamental answer to the question is yes. <laughs> In that it, it uh, even, you know, even at our business where we got to 20 people or so, we had scaling issues. Uh, one of the interesting things that we determined was that the profit level that we were generating at 20 people, while well, if we grew to 40 people, we'd probably double, obviously double the revenue, uh, our profit would probably be exactly the same as with 20 people. And one of the ch challenges with a consulting firm is um, that uh, <clears throat> the challenges and the headaches and the, you know, just the stress of running the business probably expand geometrically with size. So, you know, 40 people is probably not twice as hard as 20 people. Maybe it's four times as hard as 20 people. So that, you know, that applies all the way back to one or two people. So the way we approached it, and I think, you know, my, my sort of advice for anybody that was a, uh, running a small consulting firm today is that, you know, we started with the two of us. We made sure we figured out what we were doing. We made sure we made money at it. We built demand that was greater than, you know, what we could provide services to. We made sure that our early customers were absolutely thrilled with the work that we did. And uh, then we added a third person. So we grew very slowly and very deliberately and uh, made sure that, you know, we had plenty of profit to cover the overhead of that third person until we got them up to speed and had them really generating, you know, a profitable contribution as well and sort of grew with step function associated with profit rather than feeling the need to expand quickly. So I think, you know, we grew from two to three to four to maybe one year we grew from four to seven to a dozen to 20, right? It wasn't all of a sudden, boom, we woke up one day and we were 20 people. So it was very, you know, very deliberate, very clear growth that was very tightly tied to being profitable all along the way. Looking back, would you still have started a consulting company knowing what you know now about the scaling problems or would you have gone for a product based or some other kind of uh, type of company? 
when I started uh, my first company, I really didn't have choice for two reasons. One of which is I didn't really know any better. I mostly just sort of stumbled into starting to do consulting for people. And the second was I really didn't have uh, the experience base to build a product business against. So sort of it was much more natural to start a consulting firm. I think starting a consulting firm is fundamentally easier in a lot of ways than starting a product business because you know you're in a position where you can create something that has uh, economic relevance right away. Right, most product companies take some time to build the product, and there's a cost associated with things. And you see a lot of young product companies start off with a consulting theme, but uh, you know I don't think there's sort of a good or bad way to get started if you want to start a company, you just get on with it. The interesting bigger challenge is I think it's very difficult to go from a consulting business to a product business. So you hear the holy grail of consultants always being, oh, well, you know, we're going to generate products and start to get some scale out of our business. And that that occasionally works, but it's the exception, not the norm. And as a result of that, um, you know, if you really have designs on building a product-based business, starting with that in mind is pretty important. It seems like it would be easy to switch. You know, someone's already doing the work. They already have customers. They see the problem. You'd think they could just build a product and sell it to a bunch of other people. Why is it so much harder than it sounds? A couple of reasons. One is that a lot of times the fundamental skill sets of uh, people building products are different than the skill sets of doing consulting. So, you know, if you really think about approaching the business as building a scalable, deliverable product versus solving a customer problem. Um, as you grow the business, it does require different skill sets. Another issue is that in a consulting business, um, you tend to have a much more sort of short-term, specific customer focus, whereas a product business requires lots of attributes that are longer term and have a broader customer opportunity. So, you know, if you're doing consulting work, you're typically building something for one client. If you're doing products, you're trying to build, you know, something that can be used by N people where N is a suitably large number. Uh, a lot of the des design decisions and things that you have to do in the project are different between those two scenarios. And, you know, it's a combination of skill set, mentality, focus, um, and uh, in, in some cases just, you know, plain old uh, feedback loop with, with uh, where you're getting your money. I mean, in, in a consulting business, your customer is always going to be the one that gets to dictate what you do next because uh, they pay you each month or they pay you however often they pay you. And in a product-based business, the customer is a little more abstract. You know, it's one, one more layer removed from where you're at. You sold your business. What did you take away from your experience with your business? And then what was your next venture? I ran my company for seven years and then worked for the acquirer full-time for a year and a half and then part-time for another year. Um, when I started my, my uh, company, I was 19, so I really you know, had no real business experience. And when we sold it, you know, I had a pretty good uh, understanding of how to run uh, a small business. And, you know, 20 people profitably for seven years, you know, through the growth curve that we went through, uh, I learned a, a ton about, you know, how to how to take something from nothing and turn it into, you know, something. It was, certainly wasn't huge, but it was uh, was of interesting size. And, you know, we had to deal with all the normal issues that you have to deal with with a small business. We had uh, hiring issues, positive and negative. We had customer issues at various points in time. You know, as we as we grew out of our apartments into office space, you know, we had to start to deal with real infrastructure. Um, you know, because we had no outside investment, uh, every, you know, every penny and every nickel was precious. So we had to be really thoughtful and deliberate about how we spent money. And then obviously, uh, you know, we had a successful business at some point and we had to, you know, we 
we, we never really thought about any sort of transaction activity in terms of selling the company or exit strategies or anything like that. So when you know presented with the opportunity to sell it, we had to go through that whole process and decide what we wanted to do there. So you know, I really went from you know being complete novice to you know at least having a good understanding of how operating a business worked. The other thing, of course, is that our customers were all businesses, so we had a huge, huge exposure to lots of different types of companies and all the problems they had at different shapes and sizes, and you know lots of interesting social issues as well as functional issues in the business businesses that we work for. So what did you do after you were working for the acquiring company, after you left that or while you were part-time? What, what was next on your plate? So after, after uh, we were acquired, I ran the consulting group for a large public company that um, was starting a, a services-based component. I grew that. I essentially acquired my way out of a job. I worked with the co-chairman of that company as a resource to do a major acquisition of a 200-person consulting firm and then merged my group into that and essentially became CTO of the, of the company reporting to these two guys. I spent a lot of time with them essentially doing due diligence work, mostly on the technical side. Uh, I did some investments. I really you know, ha- didn't have any M&A or transactional experience prior, so sort of I got to learn at their feet you know, how to do angel investments and uh, you know, did a handful of things like that with them. And then you know, pretty aggressively started making angel investments with some of the money that I made from the deal in the 1994-95 timeframe, 96 timeframe used that, essentially built my own portfolio of companies that I either was the founding investor in or, you know, one of the very, very first angels in the angel syndicate and bumped into uh, somebody that I knew that had just joined SoftBank. And uh, from there, you know, ended up starting to work with SoftBank on a consulting basis, which, of course, led to me joining uh, full time our efforts when we, when we created our first fund. So why did you decide to make the move into being an investor rather than staying as an entrepreneur and maybe starting another venture or doing something more operational? I never really thought it through very much. It just kind of happened. And, you know, for that time period from sort of 1995, 94, 95 to maybe 99, I really straddled the fence between the two. So a lot of the investments I made, you know, I was either chairman of the company or, you know, essentially looked like one of the founders, even though I was on the investor side and really... While I didn't, you know, operate or run the companies as a CEO, I tended to have a deep involvement in crafting the companies from the very beginning. Probably wasn't until 1999, maybe 2000, where I, I finally realized that I had to choose and either be on the entrepreneur side or the investor side, and that you know, doing both was basically a pretty quick ticket to wearing myself out completely. Uh, you know, obviously at that point I'd had uh, I'd been living on the investor side of the equation for quite some time, so it was pretty easy to decide to step back from being as deeply engaged and involved in in starting up and creating these companies. Which is more fun? Uh, Neither. They're both fun. Are there any instances or a specific time when you think you might have made a mistake because you felt like an entrepreneur rather than thinking like an investor? Oh, yeah. I've made tons of mistakes uh, probably across all dimensions. From the investor perspective, I think being able to think like an entrepreneur is critically important. But one of the chronic weaknesses is that you tend to either overcompensate or undercompensate for the the person who's running the company. And I, I see this, you know, not just in my own experience, but with lots and lots of other investors where, you know, as as the investor, you don't realize that the guy in charge or the woman in charge is the CEO, not you, the investor. And so you tend to make decisions from a frame of reference where you think you have more control over the functioning of the business and inappropriately try to impact what happens rather than 
making, you know, sort of the ultimate decision you have to make, which is whether or not you support the person who's running the company at that point in time. So, you know, really the, the, do I support the CEO? Yes or no decision. The second you flip to no, you've got to do something about it. But as long as you're still uh, on the yes side, um, you have to really make sure that you're working through and with that CEO rather than around that CEO. Could you tell me about a specific case where you had that kind of struggle maybe early on with a particular company or a particular CEO? Probably the most uh, the most consistent example of it is one where I've befriended and am working collaboratively with a CEO who, for whatever reason, is is not as supportive of my involvement as I think um, he is. So, you know, you have somebody where when you're with them, you know, you feel like, wow, I've got a great relationship. Uh, we're working really closely. Things are logical and working well. And, you know, the second you leave the room, uh, that CEO sort of turns around to his leadership team and says, don't worry about what he just said. You know, I'm really the guy in charge or, you know, something akin to that, uh, and which is fine. The dynamic of that person being in charge is true, but what it does is essentially undermines any of the interactions that you have between essentially the CEO of the management team and then on one side and then the investor and potentially the board on the other side. And, you know, early on, I didn't notice that a couple of times. Longer term, that eventually causes real stress because you have this disconnect between the leadership team uh, and an investor or multiple investors. Uh, over time, it's been easier to do two things. One is, or you know, at least for me, one is to be really clear about the relationship with the person who's running the business, including my relationship with the business, right? So the more clarity I have, the easier it is for the CEO to to deal with me on one side. And on the other side, you know, the, my instincts and, and sort of recognizing when there's something that doesn't feel quite right uh, or as sincere as, you, you know, I'd hope it would be in that relationship come to the fore more quickly. Now you're at a venture capital firm. Can you tell us a little bit more about your firm and kind of what it's made up of and what they like investing in? We are an early stage information technology venture firm. So we invest in IT related stuff. Our heritage uh, was from SoftBank originally, which sponsored us. Uh, we created our own independent firm, which originally was called SoftBank Venture Capital, now called Mobius uh, Venture Capital in 1996. Originally, we were very focused on being a, quote, Internet-only firm. So, you know, we were one of the first firms that did really only investments in and around the Internet in sort of the 96, 97, 98 timeframe, which obviously uh, became very trendy uh, in 99 and forward. We diversified and, and uh, I would say, sort of subsumed the notion of the Internet in everything that we did versus as a separate focus. So, you know, today we talk much more about investing in IT than we do Internet-specific. You know, we invest in a wide range of stuff uh, that you'd expect, including, you know, all different types of software and services on both the business and consumer side. Um, we do a fair amount of telecom uh, equipment and infrastructure. We do semiconductor infrastructure that supports typically, you know, Internet-based applications. Our group tends to be broken up by partners. Everybody has a little bit different focus. You know, we have the common glue of IT across all of us. Everyone that uh, is a partner has real operating experience. We've all, you know, been founders of or run companies in the past. So we bring that to the table as well as uh, I'd like to think a good uh, history of venture experience at this point. And we tend to try to work very, very closely and collaboratively with the entrepreneurs we fund, um, you know, but per the comment that I made earlier, we, you know, with the exception of really two decisions, I'd like to think that 
we work for the CEO of the company and the two decisions that we really get to make are one is the capital allocation decision. Do we want to keep funding the company uh, or not? And the other is uh, supporting the CEO. Do we support the CEO or not? Other than those two decisions, pretty much, you know, all of what we're doing is anything we can to help the CEO be successful, whether that's operational or strategy or, uh, you know, networking or recruiting or, you know, functional relationships with customers or vendors or partners, et cetera. How many funds have you raised and at what what stage are they at and how much is invested already? Sure. We've raised three funds named Fund 4, 5, and 6. The preceding funds prior to Fund 4 were all SoftBank money, so there were three funds that were SoftBank money that were invested prior to us raising uh, the first independent fund. The fund that we're currently investing is Fund 6. I would say it's roughly... Uh, 80% invested, and uh, but it was a big fund. It was about $1.25 billion fund, so we still have a fair amount of capital left to invest in that fund. It's about 60 active portfolio companies, so pretty big portfolio. We do have active portfolio companies in both Fund 4 and Fund 5, uh, although we're not m- making any new different investments in either of those funds, only investing in existing companies. To the entrepreneurs out there who are listening to this and thinking Mobius is a perfect fund to be back in my company, if they want to pitch to you, what are how should they go about doing it and what are some tips you could offer them to make it effective? So simplest thing they could do is send a short uh, executive summary-like document, no more than a couple of pages, to me via email. I'm brad at feld.com, and I'd be happy to take a quick look and give a reaction as to whether it's something that we'd be interested in or not. If it's something that we're interested in exploring, you know, I'll pass it to the right partner to take a deeper look. And, um, you know, our process from there tends to be probably pretty typical of most venture firms where, you know, we'll spend some time getting to know the entrepreneur and the business, once we've decided it's something that we have some interest in and it maps to something somebody's currently investing in. Obviously, the best way to get our attention is not that, but to have a referral in from somebody else that we know or trust. So you know, if you're uh, somebody who knows an entrepreneur that we've worked with in the past or another venture firm that we've worked with in the past, um, you know, that likes you and likes what you're doing, that kind of an introduction is, is even more impactful. But, you know, happy to look at anything that anybody sends across and, and give a quick reaction. How important is a big business plan today? Do you do you want to see like 20, 30 page, I mean in the second or third, contact? There's two different questions. One is how how much do I care about the business plan and how important is the business plan? I, I personally don't care about the business plan at all, especially for an early stage company in terms of my own decision process. However, I think the business plan is a really, really useful tool for an entrepreneur in terms of framing out what he or she is thinking about building. So I I think the value of the business plan is much more internal to the entrepreneur than external to me as an investor. If you don't write a business plan, I can almost guarantee you that your thinking is going to be fuzzier and and less clear. If you're an experienced entrepreneur, sometimes you can get away with, you know, the thought process via, you know, a shorter document, executive summary, PowerPoint presentation type of thing. Uh, for first-time entrepreneurs, the discipline and effort of really going through a more rigorous process is really helpful. So for that first-time entrepreneur, they're going to sit down, write a business plan. How do they know when they're done? Is there a certain amount of pages that should be, a certain amount of hours they put into it? No, you're never really done. The business plan will continue to evolve and and change over time. And again, what you're trying to do, at least from my perspective, what you're trying to do with the business plan is define clearly what you're trying to accomplish and, and, and why. You know, using artificial metrics like number of pages or you know, number of hours that you spend on it probably isn't isn't really relevant. Um, you know, it's more making sure so the guiding principle will be make sure that you're spending the time up front 
before you know you put a stake in the ground and say this is the business I'm going to go create, thinking about what you're going to do before you actually start doing the work. It's sort of classic, you know, good design, right? I mean, before you sit down to start writing some software, you know, you want to spend at least some amount of time thinking about what you're going to create. And, you know, there's an argument that says, you know, putting together, you know, an inch high spec is the way to do it. There's another argument at the other end of the spectrum that says, you know, an agile approach is really useful where you just sort of sketch things out on a whiteboard with post-it notes and, you know, sort of storyboard out what you're doing and then sit down and start putting it together. And it has a lot to do with your style and the way your brain works and, you know, the way that, that you synthesize things as to how, quote, complete it is. But don't fool yourself through, you know, sort of laziness and say, well, you know, gosh, I can I can cut this process short because, uh, you know, I'm I don't need to do it or I've already figured it out or whatever. Make sure that, you, you know, you feel like you've really thought through at the level that you need to to then be effective with whatever you're bringing forward. Let's also talk about what, well, you have to choose VCs yourself a lot. You might have a company where you need to bring in another venture capitalist to help you fund it in a new round. What do you look for in venture capitalists? So I've worked with lots and lots of different different VCs, and everybody has a style and everybody has a point of view as to how things work. And, you know, a, a thing an entrepreneur should think about, uh, and I hear this a lot, which is, you know, VCs tend to get clumped into a generic category. And in fact, there's, you know, quite a number of different types and different styles. For me, honesty and integrity is, is paramount. I mean, I'm I've had enough experiences with people that are just phenomenal versus people who I would say are marginal in terms of, you know, their honesty and integrity, where I really just don't have any interest in, in the second category. Intellectual horsepower is really important. There is a range of, of intelligence amongst VCs, but that intellectual horsepower has to be tempered with experience. So if you've got a really, really smart person that's very inexperienced, um, that's often, you know, way, way more dangerous than an experienced person who's, you know, still obviously intelligent to be in the venture business, but not as smart. You know, the combination of that uh, experience and intelligence is important. You know, I look for people that are, are genuinely enthusiastic about creating the companies. You know, if somebody's approaching it from a pure financial perspective, namely, you know, my job is to invest in things and therefore I'm kind of unemotional about the technology and the market segments and the opportunities. Well, that's a lot less interesting and you're probably going to get less out of that person than somebody who's, you know, really, really passionate and enthusiastic about a particular type of technology or a particular type of problem that needs to be solved. And then, you know, last, having, you know, having been doing this for a while, you know, look for people that are fun. I mean, you know, you spend a lot of time together. Uh, there are, creating companies is hard. There are inevitably stressful situations where people have to rally, you know, and, and, and do unnatural acts. And, you know, if you've got people that have good temperament and are fun to work with and, you know, are self-depreciating uh, uh, and sort of laugh at, you know, laugh at their own challenges and weaknesses versus get defensive about it, it's a lot more fun. Can you look at someone's bio and get a good sense of them as a venture capitalist? Can you see if they have certain experience or worked at a certain place that they might, on the whole, be more likely? to be a good or a bad VC? No, I think in general, bios give you very little information about people. How about looking at their firm? If someone comes from a firm with a really good reputation, can you rely on them being a good venture capitalist? Or if they come from a firm with a uh, bad reputation, can you write them off as probably being a bad individual? No, I, I don't think either of those things are. They're contributing factors, but not drivers. So, I mean, I've worked with great VCs at 
you know, firms that nobody's ever heard of. And I've worked with, you know, people that are at top tier firms that are just disasters. I, I think you have to study the person and, you know, message to all entrepreneurs is to, you know, really get to know your potential investors who are going to be your partners well in advance of, of uh, choosing. And obviously, if you only have a choice of one, then, you know, you're, you're limited to some degree, but at least know what you're getting yourself into, you know, good and bad. But, you know, you have to do the work to get to know the person. And, it, you know, it goes both ways, obviously. The uh, VC needs to do the same with the entrepreneur. On your blog, you've done a lot to kind of illuminate term sheets and what entrepreneurs should be thinking of as they're getting funded. What are the top three things an entrepreneur should think about and top kind of three concerns they should have as they're getting that term sheet on the table and they see a venture capitalist is really interested in investing? I think most uh, entrepreneurs have two obsessive thoughts when they're raising money. One is I got to get the money raised. And the second is I want to get the best deal I can. And I think that's the right order to be thinking about that. Um, you know, in, in the absence of, of uh, any term sheets, kind of all the rest of the discussion is irrelevant, right? So step number one is to, you know, do what you can to actively bring people to the table that are interested in investing in your company. And obviously your leverage as an entrepreneur increases the more people you have that are interested in investing. So if you've got a choice of one, you have relatively limited leverage in terms of the terms. If you have a choice of five and a lot of people that want to get into your deal, um, you have more leverage. And then I think you shift into the second the second piece, which is essentially optimizing for, quote, the best deal and recognizing that that is not necessarily the highest price. Uh, you know, the terms surrounding the deal have everything to do with the overall, you know, quote, bestness or quality of the deal. And, you know, in the in the post that I've written, I've tried to you know describe when things really matter and when things don't, at least from one one frame of reference. Obviously, you know, everybody has their own perspective. I think the other thing that's really critical as you're going through that process is, you know, the first formal engagement that you're going to have with your new investors is the process of negotiating, you know, their investment in your company. And so it's a great opportunity to get to see what they're like in terms of their negotiating style, um, in terms of what's important to them, how they communicate. Uh, their pacing, you know, when you contact them, the, do they get back to you right away? Um, you know, does their assistant reach out and set up a conference call that happens in three days? You know, is there a sense of urgency? Is there an openness to, you know, make trades along the way? Uh, or is it kind of a take it, take it or leave it mentality? So it's, you know, using that experience to really understand what your partner is going to be like on a go forward basis, because, you know, you're going to have lots of other situations with them where understanding their style is going to be critical. Are there any red flags you can think of, like a certain term where if you see it, you know you're going to get in trouble, or is it all a more case by case? Uh, it's case by case. I think if you've, uh, you know, if you go to my blog and read through the term sheet, if you've never seen a term sheet, you, know, you sort of read through the posts, you'll see that you know there's a bunch of different terms. If you've, you know, been on the receiving end of a term sheet, you know that you, you know, kind of get a five-page document, typically, you know, five-plus five page document with a, a bunch of stuff, some of which seems totally irrelevant, uh, or you know, you kind of look at it and, and it feels obscure, and then sort of buried in and sprinkled throughout are, you know, the the really critical issues. You know, I think. Understanding it holistically, making sure that you've got, um, if you've if you've never done it before, that you've got somebody on your side of the table, whether it's your attorney or whether it's an advisor, probably an advisor and an attorney, or you know another person in the business that's been through venture financing, you know, to help say this is this matters, this doesn't. A lot of people complain about attorneys holding up deals. Is that something that you've experienced? And kind of what's the trade-off there? Should your attorney be kind of really fighting for you there, or should they be urging to get the deal done? 
an experienced attorney that knows, you know, that, that knows how to work with VCs and entrepreneurial companies will never hold up a deal. Uh, the biggest problem is having attorneys that don't have experience working with venture funded deals, venture backed companies, and have, you know, a frame of reference about how, you know, a, a deal structure should work that doesn't take into account any of the nuances or um, issues associated with a, a venture based financing. I, I would say that when, whenever I've worked with company counsel that has experience and understands how to deal with VCs. I've never really had trouble getting through the issues. And it's almost a, a contrapositive. Whenever you, whenever I've dealt with somebody who doesn't have experience, you tend to spend a lot of time struggling with stuff on the margin or that's irrelevant. Um, it's also true in, in an M&A transaction. If you're dealing with a buyer that knows how to buy venture-backed companies, has done it before, you tend to cut to the chase reasonably quickly in the negotiation. You know, If you're dealing with a company that's never bought a venture-backed company before, um, you tend to get hung up on all kinds of crazy stuff that, you know, from the venture perspective or the VC-backed company's perspective, is kind of like, why are you struggling with this? But from the buyer's perspective or, you know, sort of their view of what would be normal and typical to kind of struggle with. So making sure that there's, you know, there's not an impedance mismatch between the two sides of the, the equation is pretty important. Let's talk about geography. You said you started your business in Boston and... Tell us about where you've moved to, where you operate out of now, and where your fund operates out of. Uh, all of my partners except me are in California. I'm in Boulder, Colorado. I moved to Colorado randomly in the mid-90s uh, with my wife. We just fell in love with the place and decided to move there, no particular reason. And uh, turned out to get lucky in that Boulder and the front range of Colorado has a very vibrant tech and entrepreneurial community. So we've done um, a lot of investing there and been involved in a number of exciting companies in that geography. My wife's from Alaska and grew up here. So uh, we spend as much of the summers as we can up here. Uh, we have a house in Homer. And uh, I've been here for the last uh, last six weeks or so. And um, interestingly, you know, with with uh, broadband and uh, internet always on and cell phones, you know, with the exception of not being able to get together with people very easily face to face, you know, I'm I'm able to be probably as or even in some cases more effective working up here for the summer because I really get a lot of time to just think and concentrate and you know go deep on specific things with the various companies I'm involved in. So, what's your geographic preference? Will you invest anywhere in the country or only in certain regions, or do you kind of weight certain regions over other? I'd say there's a, a natural preference for the geographies we're in. So, you know, the majority of our companies are California-based. You know, we have another chunk of companies that are Colorado-based, and then the balance are spread around the country. We've never been limited by geography, but, you know, I think you, you tend to have natural, uh, natural clusters around wherever you are. Is technology changing that? So, you know, you have broadband now, and we're talking right now over Skype. Is it easier now to invest in companies that aren't nearby? It, yes and no. It's, I think it's easier to invest in them. It's, um, it, it's actually easier to interact with them once you have a trusted relationship. It's harder to build that trusted relationship if you're not spending real time with them. So, you know, one of the advantages of geographic proximity is you get to know the people really well, both in a business context and a non-business context. And if you don't have that proximity, the relationship tends to be a little more distant. Or you have to put effort into building that relationship. So you have to go, you know, physically go to board meetings and physically spend time with the company and physically get to know the people. It's absolutely the case that technology enhances your ability to deal with things remotely. I mean, I said a few minutes ago, I'm probably, you know, except for the fact that I tell people I'm in Homer, uh, I have a 907 cell phone and, you know, I can't get a uh, schedule a face-to-face meeting unless it's really important. Uh, people wouldn't know I was up here for the summertime uh, because the technology was, you know, three or four years, e- even as much as three or four years ago, it probably would have been a lot harder.
What do you think are some of the differences between operating a company like you were in Boston and now you're dealing a little more with the West Coast? What's kind of the different feel in the business community between one to the other? There's actually a, probably a bigger dimension shift, which is the communication dynamics. You know, I ran my company. Uh, we sold it in '93, so you know, is it, it was in a time prior to people really using email. I mean, you know, we used email within our company, but we didn't use email across, you know, from our company to our clients very frequently. Very few of them had email. And there was, you know, very, very limited cases to be able to transport the email across. There was no quote, you know, Brad at Feld.com, you know, wasn't something that people were used to. You know, we didn't have voicemail for a long time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we were a small company and, and voicemail was still novel and pretty expensive. And I think it probably wasn't until like 1991 or, you know, that we had, we actually had voicemail. So, you know, we had an answering service and we had pagers and we had, uh, you know, just the whole communicate. We didn't have cell phones, right? So the whole communication dynamic was radically different. And, you know, that created a very different tempo of a business. There was, I think, a lot more time to, you know, sort of sit thoughtfully and get work done because you weren't as interrupted by, you know, the immediacy of things. But then when there was an immediate issue, you know, you had to get up and go to where the issue was, right? So if somebody had a problem at a client, you couldn't sort of sit there and, you know, from your house on a Saturday and try to troubleshoot it remotely. You had to, you know, get in your car and go to the client and arrange to get into the building and get through security and you know, go to where the problem was and try to figure it out. The level of convenience, uh, you know, and, and, and ease at which you could use uh, the systems were much lower. And, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, many, many stories of, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you know, dealing with stuff or, you know, having, having a, I just, we had our office downtown and we had a lot of downtown Boston clients that were law firms that we did uh, different types of, um, stuff for. And, you know, four o'clock in the morning, you get a call at home from somebody who's been up all night and something's not working and they're trying to get something done. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you kind of get up, you get out of bed, you brush your teeth and <laughs> toss some clothes on, you go see them. So that's very different. You know, in terms of the, the style and the feel of the East Coast versus the West Coast, you know, I've been an, I, I, I've, I've been an investor on both coasts. Um, and I, I would say that it's, it's clichéishly different, you know, where the, the sort of California scene is a little more mellow. It's a little, you know, less financially structured. You know, there's, there's less obsession around specific terms. The negotiation isn't quite as hard, hard edge sometimes, but, but it's on the margin. I mean, you know, really good VCs on the East Coast and really good VCs on the West Coast tend to look and feel pretty similar. And, uh, great entrepreneurs on each coast tend to look and feel pretty similar. Now, there's plenty of good uh, communications for you to use. I'm sure you get tons of IMs and emails and blogs referring to your blogs throughout the day. Do you always, are you always on or do you ever take off, you know, turn off the computer and focus, whether it be your personal life or kind of deeper thinking into your business life? When I'm connected, I'm usually very, very connected. So, I don't really put a hard separation between, you know, okay, it's eight o'clock or six o'clock or whatever, and I'm not going to answer my cell phone and I'm not going to check my email anymore. What I try to do is two things. One is I have the telephones in our house um, are only in our office. So when I'm at home, this is not true in the summertime because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working out of my house, but in Colorado, 
Um, I don't have telephones throughout the house, so when I want to call somebody, I've got to go down to my office and sort of functionally shift into a mode where I'm on the phone versus, you know, I'm in the middle of my evening with my wife or whatever. Um, the other thing is that once a quarter, the two of us go away, my wife and I go away for a week and just disappear. We totally disconnect. Um, my assistant knows how to find me, so if an emergency comes up, she can hunt me down. But the balance of the time, um, I'm not on email, I'm not on the telephone, I don't check anything, and I just take a week and just completely disconnect from everything I'm doing. And to do that four times a year is plenty for me. I popped on your firm's website, and I noticed that uh, in the photos of everybody who works there, you're the only one wearing a T-shirt. Everyone else has a collared shirt or um, something a little more formal. Is that uh, indicative of your style, or did they just take your photo on Casual Friday? Well, no, I, I always wear a T-shirt. My wife likes to say there's, there's only a few things that she wished were different about me, and one was that I actually had some fashion sense. And, uh, you know, at least I'm not afraid to wear different colored T-shirts because I always wear blue jeans, so they my T-shirts always match with them <laughs> versus having to, having to worry about whether they match or not. But, no, I've, I've been casual for a long time and, and, uh, and just sort of a jeans and T-shirt guy, and that's just the way I, mean, I am. We're pretty casual as a firm. I don't know, you know, the, the picture looked like, if I remember the picture correctly, it's sort of California casual, right? Everybody's in khaki pants and... And uh, button-down shirts. Are there still events that force you guys to dress up? You know, if you're meeting with your investors, with limited partners, or meeting with a big corporation. Yeah, I'll dress up occasionally. Um, you know, to much to my my father's chagrin, I I still don't dress up at, at weddings and funerals. Uh, you know, I'll wear I'll wear nice clothes in, in a couple of different circumstances. <laughs> if my wife tells me to, I will. Um, because I understand um, uh, the risk reward profile of not not listening to her. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll wear, um, you know, nicer sort of, sort of nice casual clothes, um, you know, in any situation where it's more formal. So, you know, I don't, I don't feel iconoclastic about it or anything like that. Last hit, still in the morning over, I guess it's still in the morning over there in Alaska. What's on your agenda for today? Well, today I've got uh, a handful of uh, conference calls set up, which is pretty typical for a day like this. We're I'm involved in a financing that uh, – actually, two financings that hopefully will close um, by tomorrow or Wednesday. So there's plenty of action around those financings. And, uh, you know, the balance of the day will just be sort of catch as catch can. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brad. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks a lot. That's all for our interview with Brad Feld. Thanks to him for coming on the show. This was our first interview with a venture capitalist, but we hope to have many more. Hope you got some good insights both about company building and fundraising for your ventures. We always want to know who you want to hear and what angles you want us to go at entrepreneurship from. So let us know. Talk at VentureVoice.com is our email that we check compulsively. And you can also pop on our website for any links mentioned on this show, VentureVoice.com, www.VentureVoice.com. And from there, you can leave comments, give your reaction one way or another to these shows. We look forward to having you join us again. Till next time.